0: Our reading this morning is taken from Judges chapter 2, and we're going to start from verse 6. Judges chapter 2 and verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they had marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after their gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And if we pop over to Judges chapter 21, and skip down to verse 25, Judges 21 and verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Lord, may you open our eyes this morning, not just to see what we have done in the error of our ways, but Lord, to see how we have upset and transgressed you, how we've left you alone, left you out of things. Lord, speak to us as Alan comes to speak to us. Speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, and then speak to our behaviors. Pray, Lord, for Alan as he speaks. Pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit would be upon him. And, Lord, what he speaks, Lord, would be powerful to us to move and to change us. Bless him now. In Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Good morning. <clears throat> I'm just seeing a thumbs up at the back and I wasn't quite sure what I was meant to, to do about that. Uh, good morning. Happy New Year to you. Um, I think it's still OK. If you haven't seen someone uh, any time in January, I think the first time you see them, it's OK to wish them Happy New Year. But don't go into February with it. That's uh, that's, getting a bit, that's getting a bit old. We've had a reading this morning from the Book of Judges. And uh, over the next several months, for the next two and a half months or so, um, I'm due to be here about half a dozen Sundays, and what I'm hoping to do is to spend a little bit of time dipping into some of the highlights of the book of Judges. And what I want to do today um, is really begin to set the scene, talk about some of the background to it, and some of the big picture things that are happening uh, through the book of Judges. Um, so that's what we're going to think about today, and then in a couple of weeks' time, all being well, we'll start to jump into the stories of some of the. The more significant judges who are talked about in the book. Now, I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about the book of Judges. Um, some of you may quite uh, quite naturally think to yourself, well, is this going to be a book about a bunch of old guys in black gowns and funny wigs who are sitting in a courtroom? Well, no, it's not. Um, that's the way we tend to think about judges. Um, but the judges in the book of Judges were basically local leaders, Um, They were local leaders who God raised up at various times of need in the nation, and God used them as deliverers at times when the Israelites were being oppressed by their enemies. Some of you will think about the book of Judges, and you'll think, oh, this is great because there's some stories of great heroes here, There are some remarkable people among them. Um, Some of you will think of Samson and and the, um, the superhuman strength. Of Samson, using the jawbone of a donkey uh, to kill some of his enemies, or in that uh, dramatic moment at the end of his life, where he pulls down the pillars of the Philistine temple, uh, kills himself, but also kills a whole bunch of Philistines in doing it. A man of tremendous strength. Um, the ladies don't want to say, well, don't forget about Deborah, and of course Deborah is there, a a strong and courageous leader that God raises up a courageous woman, that God raises up um, during this this period of the history of Israel. But the problem with thinking of them as heroes is that some of them on closer examination, well, you begin to realize that there are lots of parts of their lives that are far from heroic. Now, many of them were people of faith, and that's why several of them are mentioned in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Um, But when you look closely at some of the stories, you realize how deeply flawed these people are. Um, And you realize, one of the things that you realize is that that God uses imperfect people, very imperfect people. Uh, I dare say that the fact that he uses some very imperfect people in the book of Judges, um, probably at least part of that is because that's the kind of people that that were there. Uh, It was a very bleak time in the history of Israel. But just because God uses imperfect people doesn't mean that character doesn't matter. Character does matter. And I think life teaches us that. If you haven't been following the news and uh, reading the newspapers and listening to news bulletins and so on, um, then you'll have missed one of the the major things that I think life is telling us at the moment is that character matters in leaders. Uh, And the Scripture would say that as well. Although God uses flawed and imperfect people, character matters in leaders. And we'll see some of that as, as we go along. Another, another idea that might come to your mind when you think about the book of Judges is, is, is that it's a very violent book. Um, there's a lot of bloodshed in the book. You've got the story of a, a left-handed judge. We're gonna think about his story in a couple of weeks. His name was Ehud. And you've got the story of this man plunging a dagger into the guts of a very overweight king so if that's your if that sort of lights your fire reading about that you know you get that in chapter three or again a story for the ladies you know if you think about biblical womanhood what about a woman called Jael who lived at the time of Deborah and she eliminates the military leader of the people who were oppressing Israel at the time by encouraging him to have a little drink of milk and lie down, and as he lies there, she takes a tent peg and a hammer, and she hammers it through the side of his head. That's this kind of stuff that there is in the book of Judges, and I don't think that is necessarily the worst thing that happens in the book of Judges. It is a very violent book. Uh, it's a book that sadly tells us about the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. It talks about uh, their failure to fully obey God and how they turn away from God. And, and the first couple of chapters, uh, just to give us a bit of an overview, the first couple of chapters of the book, we've read a good bit of chapter two just now, but the first couple of chapters set the background. In chapter one uh, talks about how the, the various tribes were meant to take possession of the territories that were allocated to them in the promised land. And again and again you get this idea and we're going to come back and talk about it you get this idea that they 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 kind of take possession of the bit of the of the land that is that is theirs but they don't fully deal with the people who are already living there and that's going to become something of a problem for them and in chapter two we're introduced to this basic uh, this basic theme of, of the, the way that the stories are going to develop where you've got the unfaithfulness of the people they turn away from god And God eventually judges them. And the way he does that is by allowing their enemies to oppress them. And then when they reach a point of misery, he takes pity on them. He shows them mercy. And in his mercy, he raises up a judge, a deliverer. And God enables the deliverer to deal with the particular oppressor, the oppressor who was was, was oppressing them at that particular time. Uh, And things go better for a while, but at the end of the lifetime of that judge, the people revert, and they end up being even more corrupt than their ancestors had been. That's the basic story that happens. And from chapter 3 to chapter 16, those 14 chapters really give us a series of cycles. It's a vicious spiral, uh, and, and it's built around the stories of a dozen judges, and you have this, this spiral of unfaithfulness, and judgment, and mercy, and rescue, and unfaithfulness. You've got those, those spirals that happen, and, and it, they all take place around the stories of these, of these dozen judges. Half a dozen of the judges are what you would call probably minor judges. They're not, they're not very significant in terms of the narrative. But there are six major judges. So there's Othniel in chapter three. There's Ehud also in chapter three. There's Deborah, there's Gideon, there's Jephthah, and there's Samson. Those are the six major judges, and we'll hopefully be able to talk a little bit about each of them over the next over the next several weeks. And their, their stories are what makes up the middle bit of the book. And then when you come to the final five chapters, in some ways they're the worst chapters because they're really meant to give us an illustration of what the climate was like, not the you know, was it what the average temperature was or did it rain a lot but the spiritual and moral climate and the spiritual and moral climate was really in a pretty bad state uh, and so in those five chapters they're, they're built around a couple of stories one is a story of idolatry and the other is a story of rape and murder which leads in turn to civil war and the people of Israel who have now found themselves in the land that God had promised to give to them Joshua had led them in there. They find themselves at the end of the book just about tearing each other apart. So much so that you might even wonder, is there any possibility that this group of people are going to survive? So that's really what's going on through the 21 chapters of the book of Judges. And what I want to do just in the rest of the time this morning, or it's probably now the afternoon, I think it's the afternoon, what I want to do the rest of the time, and by the way, I don't mean the whole whole of the afternoon, okay, my wife will have my lunch ready for me and I'm hoping to eat it. Uh, But for the next little while, what I want to do is to really try to lift out three of the main problems, uh, three of the main issues, ways in which Israel got it wrong. And to explore what some of the implications of that might be for us. And then we're going to finish up thinking about the mercy of God, and that will lead us, we're going to sing about the mercy of God afterwards, and that will lead us then um, to have the opportunity to worship, and there'll be the opportunity to take communion. The first problem that these guys, uh, the first thing that that I want you to notice in relation to these guys is the problem of succession. The problem of succession. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2 again. Chapter 2, verse 7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Now you read that verse you think, okay, so far, so good. Uh, well done, Joshua. The people served the Lord during the lifetime of Joshua. And maybe your mind goes to even that, that point towards the end of Joshua's life and leadership where he stands in front of the people and he says to them, okay, folks, I want you to choose today. If you're not going to serve the Lord, choose today whom you will serve. As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. And you think, wow, uh, these people obviously listened to Joshua. He was a good leader. And during his lifetime, the people served the Lord. But I actually think that as you read that, it should make you a little bit uneasy because it raises a question. And the question is, along these lines, well, that's how they behaved during the lifetime of Joshua and during the lifetime of the people who had been eyewitnesses of what God had done. But what happened next? And the answer to that comes in verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. And the next verse then goes on to talk about their sin and their idolatry. And then you get the cycles of rebellion and suffering and deliverance and and so on. But here's what I want you to see. From one generation to the next, that's all it took for this people to lose a sense of who God was. One generation to the next. Now some people will maybe want to point a finger at Joshua and sometimes you'll you'll read or hear people talk from a leadership perspective and they'll say, well see Joshua Joshua really should have done what, what Moses did because when Moses was had led the people as he came towards the end of his leadership, he prayed that God would would raise up a new leader and, and he did and it was Joshua and actually you discover as you read back then that whether it was intentional or not, but Moses effectively had been a mentor to Joshua. And so people will say Joshua was a great leader, but he made a mistake because he didn't prepare the next generation to lead. Um, I I, I think we need to be careful we don't point too many fingers too quickly at Joshua, but I do think there is a point here. And there's an important principle for leaders in, in, in all of this. Because every leadership assignment is temporary. Moses' leadership assignment was temporary, 40 years. Joshua's leadership assignment was temporary. And because a leadership assignment is temporary, that means that what leaders need to be doing is not just thinking about what's happening now in the present, but they also need to be thinking about what's going to happen in the future when I'm no longer here or when I no longer have the capacity to lead. Leaders have to be thinking about that. And I realize I'm speaking to a, probably a room from a, probably the oldest person. Well, mm, close to the oldest person in the room. I'm not going to have, have a debate with Brian about that. But, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of much of muchness, I, I, I would think. But most of you are a lot younger than me. And it's very easy when you're young, you're 40 or 30 or whatever, and, and you're, you're in leadership and you think, you know, I've, I'm going to be leading this, for, this thing for quite a while. Whatever it is that you're leading, you're going to be leading for quite a while. You'd be surprised how quickly the next 20 years will go. And suddenly you'll find yourself thinking, whoa, what is going to come next? Who's going to come next? Have I been doing anything to prepare this next generation? Now, I'll let, those, I'll let those of you who are leaders work through the implications of that. But I want to come back to this question of the second generation. Look again at verse 10. And this is really, this is a scathing comment. Verse 10, they knew neither the Lord the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Isn't that incredible? This group of people only one generation away from Joshua, and they did not know the Lord, and they did not know what the Lord had done for Israel. And I think, well, did they not have the Passover? Uh, Did Joshua not bring stones, big rocks, up out of the River Jordan and, and bring them into Canaan so that they would remember where they'd come from? Would there not have been stories that had been handed down by parents to their children? Uh, Did did they not take seriously what Moses had said about speaking to your children when you rise up and when you sit down and uh, all of of those things? What happened? Here's a generation, the next generation, who rise up and they know neither the Lord nor what He had done for Israel. There's a, a very sobering comment That was made. uh, It's in in one of his books, made by Don Carson. He said, "The church is never more than a generation or two from away from apostasy and oblivion. Church is never more than a generation or two away from apostasy and oblivion." That's a frightening thing. You don't know what state the church is going to be in in this country within a generation. And if the example of the book of Judges is anything to go by, or even when you look at the stories of the kings and how, how quickly people forgot uh, who, who the Lord really was, you, re- you realize that even though, even though it's not inevitable that these things go bad, there is a real danger that they do if we are not careful. And it's the opposite of what Psalm 145 says, Psalm 145, <coughs> excuse me, Psalm 145 verse 4, Says, one generation commends your works to another. <coughs> Excuse me. They tell of your mighty acts. One generation commends your works to another, they tell of your mighty acts. And yet one generation to the next can lose the knowledge of God. Let me ask something to those of you who are parents. A number of your parents, <coughs> children of, of various ages, and you know, let me ask you, what are, what are your priorities for your kids? Uh, what, what really matters? What are your hopes? What are your ambitions for your kids? I would say that you probably hope that they get a decent job. Be one thing. You maybe want them to be really stellar in terms of their education. You'd like them to stay out of trouble. You'd maybe like to... Financially to to do reasonably well so that when the time comes you can leave them uh, a bit of money and give them a bit of a a leg up in terms of of getting started in life You probably hope that they marry well a good family life and some of you maybe even hope that that your kids get to play football at Windsor Park one time or Old Trafford the theater of nightmares Um, You've got all of these all of these ambitions and of course there's nothing inherently wrong in any of those, probably just the last one but Old Trafford, but uh, there's nothing really inherently wrong about any of them. But they miss the point, don't they? Because you can have all of those things and you can raise a generation of kids just like this generation in the book of Judges who know neither the Lord nor the things that He has done. And you know, None of us can afford to be passive in terms of this. And you know, I was saying this morning there, there's, there's a kids' program that runs here, various activities that happen. But you know, one hour a week on a Sunday, and maybe not even every Sunday in the year, that's really just not going to cut it, is it? When you think about the messages that the culture sends, And the communication channels uh, of the culture are are open and operational uh, 24-7. And I see, uh, you know, mobile phones around. Some of you are taking notes on your mobile phones. Some of you, I don't know what you're doing on your mobile phone. But uh, those mobile phones, that's the, the culture. It's able to send those messages, communicate those messages all the time. That's the environment that your kids are growing up in. And here you've got this warning from the book of Judges, a generation that rises up that does not know either the Lord or His works. So we need to be proactive about this. We cannot afford to be passive. And to those of you who are younger, you know, it's very easy, especially if you grow up in a Christian family and going to church is a normal thing. It's very easy that you just think, you know, this is just routine. You even get a bit bored of it. Uh, or you just assume that, you know, oh, well, my mom and dad, you know, they pray and my mom and dad read the Bible and stuff. I'll, I'll just kind of come along in their slipstream. You need, to, you need to grab hold of this for yourself. The next generation needs to grab hold of this for themselves. Be determined that you will not be a generation where folks will say in 20 or 30 years' time, "Wow." That generation grew up, and despite their parents, they grew up to neither know the Lord nor know what He had done. The problem of succession. Israel got it wrong. Second problem I want you to notice is the problem of the neighbors. And by this, I don't mean that, uh, you know, your neighbors maybe were having a bit of a party on New Year's Eve. <clears throat> and I got a bit noisy, there was a lot of music, and a bit of shouting at four o'clock in the morning, or it's not pleasant when that kind of thing happens, but that's not what we're talking about here. Look at what God says in verse 21 and 22 of chapter 2. He says there, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. So you need to remember. That when Israel, with, under Joshua, came into Canaan, the promised land, there were people already living there. Uh, now, this is a big, uh, this is a big question, uh, the judgment on the Canaanites and Israel taking possession of their land and so on. It's one of the, the, the big questions in, in, in the Old Testament. Um, but, but God gave this land to his people and wanted them to take possession of it. But here he's saying that he will no longer drive, uh, drive out any of the nations that Joshua left. When he, when he died. And he leave them to, te- to test Israel. You look at chapter 3, verse 4, uh, the nations that are mentioned were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their ancestors through Moses. You see, these nations that were there had different value systems, they had different practices, they had different, uh, different worship practices, they worshiped different gods. And as the Israelites came into this, this land, they, they were going to find themselves in this dilemma. You know, do we obey God? Do we continue to worship God? Or, ooh, that's an interesting God that these people are worshiping. Maybe we should find out a little bit more about that. It was going to be a test of their obedience. It was also going to be a, a test of their military skill. Um, that's referred to as well, if you see chapter 3 and verse 2. Now, there's actually quite a lot to this theme in these first couple of chapters. Because if you go back into chapter 1, uh, and I think I already mentioned this, you'll see on several occasions there are references to tribes who were not able to take complete possession of the part of the territory that was allocated to them. And the result was then that the Canaanites lived among them, and in many cases they were able to turn them into slave labor, forced labor, um, and that kept them, uh, kept them from, from being uh, too uppity, I suppose, but they were there. And they'd been told in the opening verses of chapter 2, they were to be told there was to be no compromise with these people, no treaties, no uh, no covenant with them. Destroy their altars, God said. Don't make any compromise with these people. Now, there probably were good practical reasons and, and strategic reasons for dealing with these people, um, because there were places that, that were of strategic value in terms of of military operations, and and Israel perhaps failed to uh, take possession of some of those places. But the real danger wasn't just strategic, it wasn't just practical, it was spiritual. And so you look at chapter three, verse six, and you see this. They, the Israelites, took their daughters, that's the daughters of the Canaanites, in marriage, and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods." In other words, the Israelites are becoming like the Canaanites among whom they live. They are being assimilated into Canaanite culture and Canaanite worship. Now, a number of years ago, I read something, it was in one of the newspapers, they were running a feature about contemporary Judaism, Jews, Um, and and they were looking at, one of the issues that they were looking at was the issue of assimilation. How were the Jews getting on in uh, the United Kingdom? How were the Jews getting on in North America? And they discovered that uh, they they were beginning to blend in into the the society, into the surrounding culture. Uh, At the time that that this article was was written, the, the marriage rate in terms of Jews marrying outside of their race, in other words, marrying non-Jews, was about 60%. And they quoted a couple of people making comments about this. Uh, One one guy was a a lawyer, a Jewish lawyer in America. And, And his view was, this sounds very dramatic, his view was that America was basically finishing up what Hitler had started to do. And he said this, he said, the trouble is, that America is such an open, tolerant society. You can fight an enemy who persecutes you, but how can you fight a friend who offers you a drink? You see, just don't have a little drink, have coffee, get to know us a little bit. And the fear among some of these people was that the Jews were gonna lose their identity. Now this is, this is relatively contemporary that I'm talking about, but it's an illustration of what was happening to the Jews, to the Israelites during the time of the book of Judges. They'd let these nations stay. They hadn't taken full possession of their territory. They'd begun to look around. They'd begun to intermarry and they'd begun to worship the gods of these nations. And their hearts were turning away from the Lord. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians in the 21st century in Northern Ireland? Does it mean, for example, that we need to say, we need to establish a Christian nation, get this place back to where it used to be, Christian nation, and anybody who's not prepared to obey the Ten Commandments and live as a Christian nation, well, they can go somewhere else. We'll send them off to Rathlin Island or something like that, uh, or or we'll, 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 we'll lock them up in camps so that they don't interfere with us, and we will live as a Christian nation. Well, absolutely not. That's really not what these verses mean for us. I think one of the things that these verses remind us of, and this this whole theme reminds us of, is this call that we have as Christians to be in the world but not of it. In other words, we we live in this world. We're part of society. We do the jobs that other people do. We go to the schools that other people go to. uh, We enjoy um, some of the Hobbies, activities, sports that other people enjoy. We're in the world, but yet we're not of it. And that means we're citizens of another kingdom. We live or we're meant to live by a different value system in the world, but not of it. Now you'll realize that it's possible to be, it's possible to land on, on one, side, one extreme or, or the other with that. It's possible to say, well, we're not of this world. So we'll have to minimize our contact with anybody who's not a believer um, and almost live in a little kind of Christian ghetto uh, and have, have very little to do with anything and very little engagement with anything. And I think there are problems with that. But I also think there are problems when we say, well, you know, uh, we have to be in the world. If we're not in the world, we'll not be able to witness to them, but we become so much in the world that we, that we actually become part of the world. And our values and our priorities and our goals. Those things, our ambitions, those things look no different from anybody else. I've got this very difficult, challenging line that we need to walk. Being in the world, but not of it. I think also, just before I leave this, I think there's there's one other maybe a way to, to, to think of, of the application of this. See, what, what the Israelites failed to conquer came back and oppressed them. And I think of Hebrews chapter 12, which talks about how we're to lay aside every weight and the sin which easily uh, entangles us. And I think that that entanglement is what you see in the book of Judges. And if there's little pet sins that we have that we're not prepared to deal with, but we're just sort of tolerate them, coexist with them, then the problem is that those things may become our oppressors. So there's the problem of the neighbors, problem of succession, problem of the neighbors, and the third thing is the problem of authority. And this is where we come to that phrase that that, uh, ends the book. Uh, It comes... uh, on four occasions in the last five chapters. Um, And it says this, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit, or more literally, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. One of my favorite quotations about leadership comes from Uh, A man called Warren Bennis, who wrote quite a number of books on leadership. And he said once that one person can live on a desert island without leadership. Okay? Accept that. Two people, he said, if they're totally compatible, could probably get along and even progress. If there are three or more, someone has to take the lead. Otherwise, chaos erupts. Now, you could be talking about the book of Judges there, couldn't you? In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did as they saw fit. And the picture that you get in the final five chapters of the book um, is a picture of chaos. It's a terrible picture of all kinds of wild and uncontrolled behavior because there's no king. And because there's no king, everyone just makes up their own rules, plays by their own rules, and just goes ahead and does whatever they want. And there's obviously a comment there about human leadership. But I think there's also, there's more going on in Judges than just just a lack of human leadership because Israel has rejected the Lord, and they've begun to worship other gods. And doing what was right in their own eyes is very different from what it talks about in Exodus chapter 15 and 26. Because Exodus fifteen twenty six, there the people are called to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. There's quite a difference, isn't there? Doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord, doing what's right in your own eyes—they're not necessarily going to be the same thing. They're often not going to be the, not going to be the same thing. And I think when you read this, um, both in terms of human leadership and in terms of our culture's attitude to God, I think there's so much that you can see of, of our uh, Western civilization that's reflected in what's happening in the book of Judges. You know, we've, we've pushed as a, as, a, as a culture, we've tried to push God to the edges of the world. And there are so many of us, maybe even in this room, and we want to live life by our own rules. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do, whether it's God or whether it's, whether it's anyone else. We want, to run li- we want to run the race of life according to our own rules. And if you think about Walt Disney and his friends and all the cartoons and all the wonderful stories, well, you think about Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse and maybe a few of the others, and you have a little smile. That, that's, really, that's really fun, isn't it? But how many of those movies do you watch, those, those Disney things and others do, do you watch? And, and if you listen to the message of it, the message is, how do you make your way through life? follow your heart. Follow your heart. Don't listen to what anybody else says. Follow your heart. And you think about that, you think, okay, well, what happens if everybody just follows their heart and everybody becomes their own authority and they do what they want? Well, you land back in the book of Judges, don't you? There was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, if you're, if you're living on a desert island and you're the only one there, well, you can make up your own rules to your heart's content, and that will be absolutely fine. You can live with yourself. You can live with the consequences of whatever you do. But if you're on a planet where there are billions of other people, and everybody's wanting to just follow their own rules and follow their own heart and do what they want and what seems to be right in their own, in their own eyes, well, how does that work? It doesn't work, does it? You've got Chaos. And when we shunt God out of the picture, yeah, we've got chaos. As G.K. Chesterton uh, is reputed to have said, I think this is a paraphrase of what he said, when men stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And what that means is when we shunt God out of the picture, we leave ourselves open to all kinds of things. And I think as so much of, of what we see going on in our world today and that it, that's the result that that's what it results from in those days there was no king now imagine you're reading through this book and you're, you're reading you know you've, you've done your start a year you're going to read through the whole bible you've done genesis and exodus and you managed to get your way through leviticus and numbers you discovered that numbers a lot of numbers is about numbers Um, but you've you've managed to get your way through and you eventually come to the book of Judges. And if you've read it through for the first time, you're thinking to yourself, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That was chaos and it was terrible. And you think, well, what's going to happen then if there's a king? Will there be a king? It looks like there will be a king. And what's going to happen when there are kings? Are things going to be better? And you're wondering what's coming next. Is there going to be a king and everything's going to get on track? Is that what's going to happen? And of course, there'll be lots of kings. It'll be Saul. It doesn't look like Saul's the answer to this because he's not a great leader. You, you look at David and he starts well and then sort of loses his way and, and ends up very weak. You look at Solomon, seems to be wonderful, but ends up pretty weak and the kingdom's divided after him and, and then it, it, it becomes a bit, a bit of a mess. And, and you wonder. And this repeated phrase, in those days there was no king, it looks like an argument for... Uh, for the kingdom, doesn't it? For the monarchy, it looks like an argument for the monarchy. And certainly, if you were reading it <clears throat> at the time of David, at, when he was at his best, or Solomon, when he was at his best, uh, you'd be thinking to yourself, "Yeah, in those days there was no king. Aren't we so glad we've got David, or we've got Solomon, or we've got Josiah? Got one of the one of the good kings. Aren't we so glad the kingdom is a great? The, the idea of kingdom is a great thing. But if you're reading during the days of Manasseh, for example, really wicked king you'd be thinking to yourself, "Ah, oh, let's just get back to the good old days when there were no kings. And then you read the book of Judges and it says there was no king in those days. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it was terrible. It was a mess. And you realize then that we have a bit of a dilemma. See, here we have the, the, this people of Israel, these descendants of Abraham. And God made a promise to Abraham, you're going to have descendants, many of them. There's going to be a land in which they will live. So the promise of descendants has been fulfilled, the promise of the land. Do you know there's now there's now a land that they're living in? But it's, but it's not working. It's, it's a disaster. Who is going to lead these people? I when mean, you read the stories of the kings, you read, you realize, it's really not going to answer it. And isn't that what we need to be thinking of, or what we should have been thinking of when we when we did Matthew chapter one? Remember Matthew and the the Matthew and, and all of the, the you know the ancestors and the genealogy of Jesus. We talked about talked about some of that just a few weeks ago. And that's the question that Matthew's answering, isn't it? When he says, Jesus Christ, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham. All those promises to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus. And son of David. This desire for a king, the search for a leader comes to fulfilment with the coming of Jesus. So, there's the problem of authority. There's the problem of the neighbors. There's the problem of succession. It really is a bit of a mess, this book of Judges. And yet, there's mercy, the mercy of God. And this is where we want to end. Those last few chapters are really the worst. In fact, If you read chapter 19, Judges 19, and you read Genesis 19, you think, whoa, these two chapters seem very similar. Uh, The behavior is similar, the language is similar. And then you think, well, hey, hang on a minute. Because Judges 19, this is Israel, this is the people of God. What's going on in Genesis 19? It's Sodom, the city that God's going to destroy in judgment. And you realize, this is horrific. You realize, that Israel has become Sodom in the promised land. And then they start to tear themselves apart in the promised land. They start to tear themselves apart in a civil war. And you might think, one of the commentators, Dale Ralph Davis, says that it's a miracle that there still is an Israel at the end of the final five chapters. He says, in fact, it's a miracle that Israel survives the book This period of the judges, it's a miracle that there's still an Israel at the the end of it, but there there is an Israel at the end of it, and it's because of the mercy of God. And you'll read several references, you get a couple of them in chapter 3, references to Israel reaching a point where the oppression is just so awful that they're crying out to God, and God relents. He has pity on them. And he raises up a judge like Othniel or Ehud or Deborah or the others. He raises them up and he brings relief to the misery and he preserves the nation. And even in the the chaos of the final five chapters, he still preserves the nation. And for all the ways that you and I need to pay attention to how To what we need to learn from Israel and and the things that Israel got badly wrong, we need to pay attention to those. But for all that we need to pay attention to that, we mustn't miss the fact that they're still there at the end. And as Dale Ralph Davis says, puts it like this, he says, it can only be because Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than His people's depravity, and insists on still holding them fast even in their sinfulness and their stupidity. So there's light in it. He even holds them fast in their sinfulness and in their stupidity. Their sin is great, but His mercy is more. What love could remember no wrongs we had done? Omniscient, all-knowing, He counts not their sum, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What Father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they're many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that all Scripture is given, uh, breathed out by you, and it is profitable. And it equips us. And so, Lord, we want to receive... Your word from this book of Judges and acknowledge that it's profitable for our equipping today. And Lord, as we think about Israel and uh, the fickleness of their hearts and how quick they were to forget you, Father, would you help us? Help us to lean into your grace, Lord. We need it every day. We thank you that you make it available to us every day. And, Lord, as we try to be in the world, but not of it, would you give us your grace in that? As we think about the next generation, we pray for your grace there. And, Lord, that we would acknowledge you as our king. And not not turn everyone to our own way, but that We would accept that you have led on Christ all of our sin so that we can come back to you. Thank you, Father, that our sins, even though they are many, your mercy is more. We pray in Jesus' name.